Mac Power Users, Episode 66, iTunes Match. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, along with David Sparks. How are you, David? I'm a little worried that we're at show 66. That's a bad number. Well, I think when we get to 666, we'll be a little more worried. I don't care about that. It's just the way they made that abomination out of uh, Star Wars. And they use 66. That oh. All okay. the Jedi had to die at 66. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll try not to. We'll try to make sure that nobody dies at the end of this episode. Okay. All right. Um, so we're talking today about uh, iTunes Match which is a service that, interestingly enough, I was not at all interested in at all when it was announced during, I don't know if it was WWDC or one of those special events that Apple had. I think it was Steve's last one more thing. Yeah, it was Steve's last one more thing. And I just was like, yeah, not, not interested in the least. But um, you've been using it. You've been using it since the beta. And then once it came out, you know, I mean, I'm a sucker. 25 bucks, new Apple product. People started talking about it. Macworld wrote an excellent series of articles about it. There were a lot of questions about it. And, you know, I just came to think, wow, this is like free upgrades for all my music. And, oh, wow, there's actually some more stuff I can do with it. And, you know, more and more things came out. And I'm, I'm, we started talking. There's, there's more to this iTunes match thing. It's interesting that you didn't care about it, and I was excited about it. Not a it. thing. I yeah. think it has something to do with where we're coming from. You know, I'm at the point in my life where I've got three other ladies I share this house with who have varying and different tastes in music than I. And we've got all this in one big library, and we've got, you know, a central iMac that holds, you know, the mother load of all our music. And it's always been a, a hassle managing it. And this seemed to me like a really great solution for that problem. So I was ready to jump on it. Whereas you're, you know, you're a single I'm, lady. You're living I'm, home, and I'm the exact opposite. I'm a single person. Everything that I own is in iTunes, and I don't have nearly as much as you. I I only have about just over two thousand songs. And honestly, these days I'm more into podcasts than I'm into music. So I do have you know songs, but. It's never been that big of a deal. It's never been that big of a music collection. Everything I have, I've either bought from iTunes or I've ripped myself, and I have the CDs. And you know, I'm thinking, why? Why do I need this? Yeah, see, and we're we're just the opposite. I used to be a professional musician. I love jazz. I love some classical. I love some pop. I love classic rock. My kids went through the Disney grind, you know, where they got all the Disney artists. My wife loves '80s, so we've got this crazy eclectic library, and. uh I, so I was very anxious to try it. I got in it on the beta, which was, in hindsight, a mistake because it yeah. was kind of a mess through the beta. But since I was already in a developer program, I just couldn't wait. And I kept telling myself that I'd be able to talk about it here with more authority, although most of the problems I had in the beta don't exist anymore. And either way, I, I find it very useful now that all the dust has settled. The problem is I think Apple did an unusually poor job in communicating what all this means. And uh, I thought this would be a great place for us to step in and kind of talk through iTunes Match. If you're thinking about it or if you're using it and you have questions, the point of this show is by the time you get to the end of the show, you'll be an iTunes Match expert and be able to go make it happen. Right. And I also think it's interesting that although we both switched over to iTunes Match, we had very different experiences in doing so. 
um, I clicked a button and less than an hour later, all of my music was in iTunes match and no problem. And, you know, you had kind of this nightmare week long experience. So I think we can kind of talk about some of that process and, you know, what could have been done differently. Some of the steps that maybe I took, or maybe we should have been taken to to clean this up before you start matching and, and try to avoid some of that hiccups. And some of it was just maybe Apple wasn't quite ready. Yeah. And also some of it is the fact you have a 2000 song library and I have, I think an 18,000 song library. So that's, that's a lot of it. So uh, that makes a difference. And I've got a lot of eclectic stuff, Uh, but, but let's just go through it. So first of all, the idea of iTunes match is following up on Apple's idea that, you know, your iMac is no longer going to become your media hub, that they're moving that to the cloud. It's just going to be another device, just like it's, it's being demoted. Yeah, the Mac is demoted. So when you think of your music, you don't think that it all starts on the hard drive residing on your your Mac. It resides on iTunes, or I'm sorry, Apple's iCloud server somewhere out in the world. And your Mac, as well as your phone and everything else you own that's Apple-related, plugs into that library and can download and access that music. So, you know, the process is putting your music up to the cloud and then being able to manage it from your various devices. So that's the general idea. So the basics are, uh, how does it work? Uh, To begin with, it's just music only. You're not going to be putting your TV shows and your movies up there or your PDF files. In fact, you know, the little uh, PDF booklets that come with some of the music albums you get now. Yeah, those don't even sing. So it's really just music. Um they're pretty liberal about what you can put up there and the music can be as low as a 96 K bit rate. And, uh, it has to be smaller than 200 megabytes. If you've got some massive music file, it's not going to go up and it's a limit of 25,000 songs. I talked about how I had some 17, 18,000 songs. I'm still within the limit with a pretty large library, but if you're a real hoarder, um, there's some problems there, but we have some ideas about how to get around that. And I guess we should say it's intended for music only. And so that would mean that it's it's audio files that are classified as music. So just because it's a AIFF or a WAVE or a, a, a MP4 or an MP3 that's in your iTunes, you know, music collection classified as music, as long as it meets Apple's criteria and Apple thinks that it's music, it's going to either try to match it or it's going to upload it to the cloud. So in my case, you know, I've got some some voice memos and some lectures that met that criteria that got uploaded. And I was going, oh boy, I forgot that I, I forgot that I had these. What are, what are these doing up in the cloud? Yeah, anything. And stuff I've played myself on my piano. Uh, you know, I record MIDI and then turn it into audio tracks. That stuff got uploaded to iCloud. So it doesn't have to just be a recording artist. It can be anything you've made that's categorized as music and is an AIFF or AC, uh, was it ACC file. AAC. AAC. Sorry, it's early. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so that's the idea. You know, you're going to put all of it up there, and then you're going to access it from your computers. There's some more limitations, though. At this point, it's only the United States. Right. Um, there's a cost. It's twenty five dollars per year, so it's a, a subscription model. And a lot of people are asking, well, why am I paying twenty five dollars a year for accessing music I already own? I guess you could say it's for the server cost. I think a lot of it also has to do with the licensing cost because. Uh, this is the only online service where the music industry has allowed uh, a company to match tunes and not require you to upload them. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit in a little bit. Right. Uh, 
And even though it is U.S. only, Apple has announced their intentions that they would like to bring this to other countries. So if you are not listening to this podcast in the U.S., I, I don't think this is necessarily a total wash. I think their idea is that it's going to be coming to other countries. So just stay tuned and hope. And my guess, once again, is that is it's the, the licensing. Well, licensing and also server-based. I mean, Apple is getting into the server business and the internet services business, and I think they're intentionally limiting access on some of these things like series only on the iPhone 4S until they work out those kinks and they can figure out scale. Uh, But I wouldn't be surprised if it's not long before you can get this in other countries. Now, another limitation is that you can just have one iTunes match account uh, per computer. Now, David, do you know for sure if this is truly per computer or if it's per user account on the computer? As I understand it, it's per computer, but I didn't test it. Okay. Well, the the idea is, and the, and the reason for this limitation, is they don't want you to constantly flip-flop back and forth between your iTunes Match account. And that's it's kind of a DRM limitation because they don't want you to match this this person's songs, then match your buddy's songs, and then, you know, match somebody, some other buddy's songs and get access to all of these these songs back and forth, back and forth. You know, every time I hear about these limitations that the music industry is trying to impose on these digital services in effort to help avoid piracy, it just reinforces for me how clueless they are about this stuff. Because if people really wanted to copy music, they could. And you don't need to be that sophisticated to do it. Uh, So most of the stuff they talk about is just nonsense. And I can't imagine somebody on the other side of the table and Apple just smirking when they introduce one of these limitations. But either way, uh, as I understand it, you can have one iTunes match account per computer. So think about that. Uh, and frankly, I would recommend, I'm going to talk about later in this show that if you're a family or you have, or you just, you have one other person in your house, uh, it's not a bad idea to just merge your accounts for the purpose of uh, music management. So Pick one account and just use everything there. Because one of the things you're going to do with this is you're going to remove all the DRM from your music anyway. So if you have a need in the future to split the library, like I'm thinking when my daughter at some point you know, goes to college or moves out of the house, uh, she could get her own iTunes account. We could still make a way uh, for her music that she's purchased on our general account to get into her future account. See, I, I was actually, and I know we've got a separate section. We're going to talk about this later. Uh, I was wondering if the opposite would be true. If, if iTunes matches kind of the bridge to separating accounts that maybe you've kept together for so long. So well, let's talk about that further. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, you could split them at this point if you wanted using these tools. Right. But let's, I'm just, let's, I'm just okay. talking about splitting them at some point in the future. But Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but let's let's keep with the basics for iTunes Match for now, and and we'll talk a little bit more about specific situations a little later. Yeah. So it's server based music management is the I guess the summary of what the service is, and there's really two components to it. The first is the upload, you know, getting the existing music you have onto the server, which is not necessarily an upload in this case, and the second is the download, you know, getting that music back to your various devices. So the first thing that happens is if you first you have to be running the most recent version of iTunes and you have to be upgraded to Lion. Is that correct? You have to be on Lion, right, David? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
and it will pop up a little iTunes match. And the first time it will ask you, do you want to turn on match? And if you said no, and you thinking that you might want to turn on now, that's fine. You can, you can go turn it on in the system preferences. And the first time it will charge you the 25 bucks to your, to your iTunes account, presumably of a credit card or something on file. And it will charge that and it will charge you yearly unless you go into the preferences and, and turn off the, the yearly charges. So just be aware of that. If that's the type of thing that you're planning to only pay for once and you do not want it to auto renew, um, you need to go in and turn that auto renew off. And there is a case for doing this just once. There is a case. And we'll, we'll talk about that. And that's initially, you know, what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was just going to do it once, but you know, now I'm, I'm thinking about that too. Um, so once you initially turn it on, the first thing that it's going to do is iTunes match is going to scan your iTunes library. Now, I think there's some other steps that you may want to do before you turn iTunes match on, but, but we'll talk about uh, prep in a minute, but we're just talking kind of theoretically how it works. So iTunes Match will scan your library and it will pick up the metadata of all the songs in your library and it will see if it can match those songs with songs that iTunes already has in its catalog. And if so, it will just come back as matched. It will not upload those songs to the iTunes cloud. If it, so for example, yeah. let's just stop. So let's say you're listening, you have the Beatles White Album and you have Blackbird. Well, chances are Apple already has Blackbird for sale in the iTunes store. So they already have that 256-bit, um, no DRM AAC file available on their server. So when you do the match part, it's going to say, Katie has Blackbird. And up on the server, they're going to say, oh, we have Blackbird already. Let's flip a bit somewhere that says, Katie has access to Blackbird. So once it sees that, it will uh, flip that bit, and it won't upload Blackbird again because it already has it in, the, in its cloud server. So, now, if I have, let's say, a 128K version of Blackbird that I ripped from the CD, the white album that I own, it's not going to download and replace that 128K bit version. We'll talk about how you can do that later. But as this initial step, all it's doing is, is making a scan to see what it can match and what it can't. And so when you have a library of, let's say, Katie's 2,000 songs, I would presume that almost all of those were already in the iTunes store, Correct. I think in total, um, it matched almost everything. It was less than 100 songs that it uploaded. Okay, so after it scanned her 2000 tune library, it said, okay, there's 100 of them that we don't see on our server, and that's the next step, the upload. Right. And so it, it then uploaded the 100 or so songs that it didn't have, um, and that process in total for my 2000 songs, I, I want to say it took about an hour, hour and a half, maybe, maybe, maybe closer to an hour. Okay, and, and I had some troubles, but I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Okay. And then that's it. Now you're matched. So in the future, if you, well, if you buy your music from iTunes, then iTunes automatically is going to deliver you the 256K um, DRM-free version and is going to keep a record of that. And if you have it already set uh, to sync with your iPhone or your iPad, then that's already going to happen. Um, it's also going to keep track of the music that you buy. So those are automatically going to be added to your match catalog, so to speak, and you can re-download those. Um, if you rip a CD into iTunes now, after you've already matched, iTunes will periodically go through and update the match. So you can see if you turn on, which I suggest you do in your view options, you can you can turn on the iCloud status so you can see exactly what the status is of each of your songs. You can see whether they were matched, whether they were uploaded, whether they were not eligible. And you will sometimes see that it says pending, so that if you've recently imported or downloaded a song, 
it may be pending. And usually I found within 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes a little longer, iTunes will have rescanned and said, oh, there's some new music here, and it will figure out what it needs to do with that. Now, you can also manually set it to to rescan. Yeah. And we're getting in real detailed here, and I, I want to okay. save some of that for later. But just as an example, yesterday my wife bought the Muppets movie album. Of know, course she Muppets, did. Because, hey, that's some good music. I and, love Daisy. And so we, we ripped it into the library, and then we were off doing family stuff all afternoon, and we got into a debate about the song. Oh, so she bought it. She bought the physical CD. Bought the physical CD. Okay. And, uh, so we ripped it in, and I ripped it into the library, but I didn't do the thing forcing iTunes to send it up to the cloud. I, you know, cause we we're just busy. We we're running out. And then I was at a family event last night. We got into an extended debate about the song Menomina, right? Very, Menomina. very high level discussion. Menomina. Yes. So yep. I didn't think it would be up there yet and opened my uh, iPhone. Sure enough, there it was. So it happens pretty fast. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then you've got the 25,000 track limit and some of the other stuff we're going to talk about getting around, but that's the general idea in the world. You you're so essentially your library has been put up to the cloud and then you can access it on your other devices. So the rest of the show, we're going to talk about prepping your library, you know, making that first upload and then using this tool on your Macs and on your iOS devices. But first let's talk about uh, smile software. Uh, our first sponsor. Yeah. You know, Smile Software is the maker of a lot of my favorite software that I absolutely cannot live without. And today we're going to talk about PDF Pen. You know, PDF Pen is my tool that I now use as my default opener for all of my PDFs. And it just does everything. It allows me to edit PDFs. It allows me to redact information from PDFs. It allows me to drop signatures in. I use it all the time in work to create forms, to fill out forms, to organize PDFs with table of contents. There is so much that PDF Pen can do. Sometimes I even forget all of its capabilities. So, you know, there's a fix for that, David. Yeah, there's an ebook by Michael Cohen. It's only $10 and it's taking control of PDF Pen. You know, what, like one of my favorite tips is using the table of contents to organize large documents. And then I can access them both on the Mac, the PC, and on my iPad. And people were saying, well, what else can you do with this? And I say, you know, for 10 bucks, you can become an expert. And yeah. uh, this, ex- this book really lays it all out for you. So it's 132 pages. You can buy it from the Smile Software website. You can also download um, a free preview version where you can learn all about PDF files. You can understand the tools that come with PDF Pen. You can learn how to navigate and create PDF documents, learn how to annotate and take notes on the PDF, learn how to copy, edit, and review PDFs, fill out forms, create forms, edit a PDF, publish your PDFs. I mean, this just, I, I downloaded this book and saved it on my iPad just as a reference tool for using PDF Pen. It's, it's very intuitive and very easy to use. But sometimes I forget, you know, if I think, gosh, it'd really be nice if I could do this. I wonder if PDF pen, yep, yes, it does. Yes, it does do this. So um, you can buy PDF pen either from the smilesoftware.com website or through the app store. It's $59.99 for the regular version or $99.95 for the pro version. They have a 90-day money-back guarantee. And I would strongly suggest that you... uh, Consider this uh, Take Control ebook as an additional add-on, and uh, you can find more information about everything to do with Smile Software and PDF Pen at their website, smilesoftware.com. And thanks, Smile, for sponsoring the podcast. So uh, let's talk about preparing your library for this big upload. Yeah. 
And this is where I made a mistake. I mean, I just went into it blindly. I was in the beta, moreover. I said, okay, just do your thing, iTunes Match, and send it all up. And that's really was a mistake for me. Uh, what I, you know, the long and short of it is I ended up having some duplicate track problems. And I think this was only a beta problem because I've never heard of anybody else dealing with this. But well, actually, we had someone write me and, and write in. We'll talk about a little later saying they had problems with duplicate tracks. They might have been in the beta. They didn't say. It, it was the, this was a weird duplicate track problem because I would have two versions of a song, but they weren't both the same song. Like I would be listening to Miles Davis, kind of blue, and then there would be, you know, another song that had the same album art for Miles Davis, but mm-hmm. it was a different length and it ended up being Michael Jackson beat it. You know, oh. so you're like in your office listening to you think kind of blue, and then all of a sudden Michael Jackson comes up. It was it was always That's very disturbing. It was kind of funny, really. You know what's next, and um, it seemed to be a problem that focused on things that I had downloaded on my phone uh, while I was in the beta. So I really, this isn't really a, a relevant point because I've never been able to duplicate this problem since the product went out on the market. But the net result was I had some extra cruft in my library that I had to go through and find duplicate tracks and delete the wrong ones. Well, you know, I've got some, or I had some and still do have some duplicate cruft in my library. I mean, that happens over time with your, with your iTunes file because you rip CDs and then you rip multiple versions of the same CD or that you've, you know, you've got this album and then you get the digitally remastered version of this album. And then you get the digitally remastered super plus version of this album. And I mean, you know, they're doing with CDs now what what practically George Lucas is doing with Star Wars DVDs is you, you know, your your favorite popular CDs now have three and four versions. Yeah. Well, either way, I had that problem and it went away. But if I had it to do over again, I would have looked very carefully at the library before I did that original upload and made it a, an attempt to illuminate duplicates um, and remove unwanted tracks and and just generally fix my library. Like another thing I had was I'm a big fan of um, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron series. It's the series of books about these sailing ships in the Napoleonic Wars. And I had some of those books uh, that I had ripped from my CDs, the books on tape. But I had never bothered to categorize them as audiobooks. Oh, and, yeah. So and they were when, just sitting in your music library. Yeah, and when you've got an 18,000 song or so library, it's sometimes you don't notice all that stuff in there. And so it spent hours and hours on my upload, and I couldn't figure out why. And I finally went to see what it was left pending, and it was all these very long audiobook tracks. And so I recategorized those as audiobook. And you can do that by uh, in iTunes. Hit Command-I on a track or multiple tracks and go to the Options tab, and you can switch a category of an item from music to audiobooks and then it's out of the iTunes cloud, you know, you know, lens. And that therefore it doesn't go up on the cloud and that stuff comes out of your library and then that removes some of those tracks. Like if you had twenty five thousand, that's one way to, to move them. Uh, you could also recategorize a song as a podcast to do that as well if you wanted to do that. Um, but so anyway, I had this problem where I had all this, you know, it was taking hours and hours for this initial upload. And I was putting a bunch of books on tape into iCloud, which I really shouldn't have done. Right. Well, that's, you know, just kind of a side note. And another reason I like to make sure that all of my audiobooks, because I've ripped quite a few from CDs. I used to travel quite a bit um, with my prior job, and I would regularly, um, you know, buy these audiobooks on CDs. But back before iTunes really had the, the, the big category that you could integrate with Audible, 
And I would buy all these audiobooks on CDs. I would rip them in so I'd get them on my iPod. And like you, I would I would have all of these. But there's some other reasons for categorizing them correctly. Because once you categorize them, um, you can also convert them to is it is it an M4B file that you can rename them to? And then you get some some additional features like you can play them back at double time, which which I kind of like to do. But that's not for everybody. Yeah. But just the point is having having things categorized appropriately can can give you some additional features like remembering playback position or being able to play them back at double time or uh, making sure that they're grouped together properly. So it's it's a good idea in general to to have your iTunes library, you know, properly categorized. You know, David, I was going to go back and and ask you about the duplicates cuz cuz eliminating duplicates seems to be a a chronic problem and you know, I know that there's some software for that. Is is there any in particular that you use? Um, I did it manually this time because it was odd. I had these tracks with the same name and artist, but different lengths, you know, like for the kind of blue album, I would have one that was my, actually Miles Davis and one that was actually Michael Jackson. And I didn't want to take the risk of uh, automating that deletion process and ending up with Michael Jackson and losing Miles Davis. Right. Uh, so I went through and, listen to each one to make sure I, I did it the hard way. I just, you know, in iTunes, there is a way to find duplicates in iTunes without any extra software and file. And there under the file menu, there's a display duplicates command and it, it will do that. And then you sort them by name. So then it lays out the, uh, the tracks by name. And if you don't have a big library, you can do it this way. Um, if not, there are some scripts for that as well. Um, I think, is it Dave scripts or Craig Doug scripts? Doug, Doug scripts. scripts. Yes. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Doug does a great job of automating iTunes and has some excellent scripting programs. One of them is a duplication finder that is much more robust than that in iTunes. Right. And that's one of the ones he sells. Um, some of them he gives away, but this one you have to pay for. But it's very good. And I've used yeah, that I've in heard the past as well. That's the best of them. Now, one of one of the things that's the problem with just the iTunes find duplicates that, that I found is, you know, I have a lot of songs that I, I – do have duplicates of, but they're not truly duplicates. You know, like for example, Billy Joel is one of my favorite artists. So I think I have every single CD that Billy Joel has ever done. So I will have multiple versions of, say, Piano Man in my iTunes library. I will have, in fact, let's just see how many versions of Piano Man I have in my iTunes library. Um, you know, I will have the original version that was on a CD. Then I have, of course, it's in every single Greatest Hits compilation that I have. And then, of course, he plays it in every single show. So every single, um, you know, live CD of his that I have, you know, 12 Gardens Live or the Millennium Collection Live or any of his, um, you know, Live at Yankee Stadium CD, you know, of course, Piano Man is going to be there. So although iTunes shows all of those as duplicates because it has the same name and the same artist, it's not necessarily the same song because, you know, one is five minutes and 44 seconds. One is six minutes and 32 seconds. Now, it brings up an interesting point. Do I need to have 23 versions of Piano Man in my iTunes library? Maybe, maybe not. Do you really have 23 versions of Piano Man? It's in the teens. Wow. With a 2,000-song <laughs> library. Yes. I like right. Billy Joel. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just please don't say it's Barry Manilow. Just please don't no, say it's that. Not, it's not. I don't. I don't believe I have a single Barry Manilow song in my library. All right, not a single one. Okay, so when you do this with the basic iTunes display duplicates and you organize it by song name, as you go down the list in the right column, you'll see the album. So the trick is to organize it by song name, and as you scan down, look for duplicate album names next to each other. Okay, so if you've got, uh, you know. 
I, I like Thelonious Monk. I have a lot of versions of Round Midnight. But if you look in the album column as you're going down where those songs are duplicated, you'll see that the same album is never duplicated. And that's the trigger. If you see that the same album next to each other twice with the same song, then obviously you've got a duplicate. So th- that's a way to do it manually. Uh, if you really you know have a lot, if you have a big library and this has become a, a chronic problem for you, Doug scripts. I think it's like ten or fifteen bucks. It's not much. And it, this it's guy, well worth the price of admission. Yeah, Doug does so much for the community in releasing so many great uh, iTunes scripts to really you know tweak your library that it's worth paying for if it's going to be a big deal. And even though I have a pretty big library, I was able to do it manually. This wasn't a huge problem for me. You know, I think it was about ten or eleven albums where I had this duplicating problem. And as I look back, I think it has something to do with the fact that I was using iTunes Match in the beta on several Macs and several iOS devices, and just something went wonky along the way. I don't really blame Apple. Uh, when I use beta software, I should expect things like that to happen. But right. uh, it was fixable. But another thing you want to do in prepping your library, I think, is, uh, is audit the um, genres. You know, I think that's a good way to really manage your library, and it's a good time to tighten those up. You know, we had so many genres in our library because, you know, as my kids and my wife buy music, we get these genres, you know, it's like 80s pop rap. And it's like two or three different things in one category. And I don't know what these music companies are thinking when they put out CDs that, or I guess whoever it is that codes this metadata, they give it like multiple genre in one listing. So all of a sudden you've got, you know, 70 different genres when you really need about 20 for your whole library. Right. So, you know, fold those into each other, figure out which ones are where they belong. You know, like for me, uh, a lot of the stuff we had was pop music, but it was much more subcategorized where we'd have like five songs in one genre, you know, that we don't need that. So I would just highlight all those songs, hit command I in iTunes and change the genre for them to pop. And then it would just fold those into the big pop genre that we have. Um, So this is all a good time to do this stuff before you do your initial upload. Uh, well, and, and the other thing kind of similar to that is, you know, I did the same thing with, I've got a few artists that I know I'm going to have that Billy Joel problem with where I'm going to have a lot of duplicates. And so I just did through and I, I manually, you know, knowing that these are my big artists that I'm likely to have a lot of duplicates in, I just manually did a search by artist and sorted it that way and kind of manually went through too. Cost some more. Once you get it all done though, your library is going to be better than ever. Absolutely. And, uh, to be honest, I did this stuff afterwards because I just jumped in blindly. And now after I had everything sorted out in the cloud, then I had to remove duplicates. And there's a whole process for that. And then I went through and fixed it. And one of the nice things about iCloud that I found was I can fix my library from any computer. Before we had the one central iTunes repository in the house. Well, now my MacBook Air displays the whole iTunes library. So when I'd have you know time sitting in front of the television, I would sit there and just kind of goof with the library, fixing genres and ratings and smart playlists, and that would automatically populate across all the Macs. So I thought that was another benefit of iTunes Match that I didn't really think of. Right, and and let's also talk about the reverse. You know, you're you're cleaning out your library, you're you're missing all of the, or you're losing all of this unwanted stuff. Now you can go through as long as you keep paying for iTunes Match, you can you can rematch. But especially if this is the type of thing that you think that you're only going to pay for once or, you know, pay for one year of, I mean, obviously you've got the full year to do it. If you've kind of been looking for an excuse and you've kind of been sitting around waiting to upload things, or you've got a stack of CDs that you've been waiting to rip in, or you've got a folder of music on your Mac that maybe you haven't folded into your iTunes library, 
now's a good time to do that too. You know, fold all of that music that you've been meaning to fold into your iTunes library, maybe before you do all this duplicate removal so you don't have to go back and remove duplicates again and get everything in there so that when you do the big match, you know, you, you, you're you really doing it on all, if not most, you know, most, if not all of your music. Okay. And at some point you're in shape and you're ready to do it. Right. So then you push the button and it's real simple. I mean, you literally turn you push iTunes button. match on. Yeah. And, and then uh, you run screaming out the door and don't come back. Yeah. So then your computer is going to spend some time, depending on the size of your library. How long did it take? There's three steps involved. First, it analyzes your library. That was it, the longest step for me. And how long did that take? Mm, I would say that took a good half the time. Now, mine only took an hour, so I would say that, that, that took probably 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah. And if you have a large library, it doesn't, at least in my experience, doesn't take that much longer than that. Um, oh. I believe it took about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And then the next step is it matches, and then the ne- third step is that it uploads. So mm. you know, first you know what? You- maybe maybe it was the th- maybe it was the second step that took that took long. I don't know. Okay, well it, it figures out what you have, then it figures out what it has in comparison to what you have, and then it uploads the difference. Um, for me, the upload, and this is once again back in the beta, it literally took days. I mean, it was right. going for days, and we w- we went out of town at one point. And because my the centralized iMac in our house is not attached with copper, it's on the Wi-Fi network. I I drug a cable, you know, a Cat five across the house and plugged it in as we were walking out the door. So I figured that it would have at least you know the bandwidth advantage. I don't think it made that much of a difference. But you wow. know, the thing was, I wasn't aware that I I I just didn't go about it smartly. This is the reason I'm making this podcast so people understand. And I was uploading a whole bunch of uh, Patrick O'Brien novels. As well as other nonsense, which, you know, was why it was taking so long. Now, if you're going or you think you might be doing a lot of uploading, you know, I really wish that that Apple would break these steps up and tell you, okay, I'm I'm about to upload 400 songs at this many, you know, gigabytes or megabytes and, and give you an opportunity to either stop or do that in stages. Because I know a lot of people, we're pretty lucky here in the United States, and initially iTunes Match is only being re- released in the United States, that... Most of us don't have too terrible, um, you know, bandwidth caps, at least on our home internet connections. Some people are still on dial-up. Some people have, you know, I think the worst I've heard is is maybe a five or maybe a 10 gigabyte cap at home. But, you know, I'm I'm sitting here on my, my Cox cable and I think my cap is 200 gigabytes a month. So I knew that even if I uploaded my entire music library, I was going to be well under that. But it is something that you need to be aware of if if you are on a, a plan that for whatever reason gives you a very small data upload cap. So be be careful, be aware of that. But Apple's never going to put that stuff in there because they don't want the user to have interruptions to getting it done. And they don't want to have people who don't have no idea what that dialog box means looking at it and scratching their head. It's yeah, because Apple does live in a little bit of a fantasy world where there's this ubiquitous, always-on, super-fast Wi-Fi with no bandwidth caps anywhere. Yeah, but you can look at... I want to live in that world. You can look at as it's uploading, and we're going to talk about the, the icons in a minute. But you can see exactly what's happening if you're smart and you look at the playlist, uh, or not even the playlist, if you just look at the way everything is set up in your library, there are little icons that tell you each individual track where it stands with respect to the iCloud. So... You can sort by that, and you can even use it in smart playlists. So you can um, you can get around that problem, the failure of having that dialog box. You can, in essence, create it yourself with a smart playlist. You're, are you talking about the Snell procedure? Well, that's part of it, but yeah. just in general, the the upload process. And but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. 
Another thing to do, think about when you're doing that first upload, and maybe even while you're prepping, is I think playlists and smart playlists are even more important than ever as you get into this process because uh, that gives you a way to easily pick libraries to download to devices that have limited memory. So it's not a bad time to start thinking about those as well. Yeah. Um, track problems. So as you're doing the upload, and maybe this is a place to talk about it, is you you will see some tracks that don't upload. And there's various reasons why. In fact, Apple has a support article on it. I'm going to go ahead and link that for the show notes. Um, and you get these various icons attached to the, to the um, and of course now the link's not working as we record the show. Um, you get various icons attached to the tracks. Like for instance, if you have a cloud, the iCloud icon with a line through it, a, a diagonal line through it, that means that that track has been found wanting for some reason, and it's not eligible to be uploaded to the iCloud server. It could be that it's below 96 bits. It could be that it's over 200 megabytes. It could be that it's shorter than five seconds. There's a couple other reasons why. And um, it, generally, it's poorly encoded tracks, like some old tracks that you might have you know, ripped before you realized that you, know, you can go to 128 or 256. Uh, in that case, you can make a song eligible for upload by encoding it up. And it's kind of a false statement. That's like when you go into Photoshop, you can add more pixels by typing in a bigger number, right? Yeah, exactly. It's essentially just like that. So you right-click the track in iTunes, and you say re-encode to AAC, which puts it, I think, at 128 or 256, but it's it's really very blocky. It's you know, it's like when you when you magnify an image with poor pixel resolution, it, it's you're not actually adding information. You're just re-encoding it at a higher level and making it bigger, but you're not actually adding any in data. So the song still sucks. You're just tricking iTunes into thinking that it's a higher bitrate song. Yeah, but and that's good enough because then iTunes says, oh, yeah, well, now she does have Blackbird at 128. So we can go ahead and tick the box, and now she's eligible to use our 256-bit you know, fully, you know, enhanced version of Blackbird. So that's all you need to get the song to be eligible. Now, this only works if this is an actual music song that you you think there's a reasonable chance that iTunes is going to have the ability to match. There's there's no point in doing this on on things like lectures or or something that's custom to your music library that you know iTunes isn't going to be able to match. Yeah. Uh, another icon you can see while you're doing this, and to display these icons, by the way, uh, when you display your your music in iTunes, you can have it show the iTunes status. That's the the magic word, and then it has this this list of icons that goes down the list. Right, um, and and what you can do is you can click on the um, the bar on iTunes on the top of iTunes. You'll you'll see kind of the title bar. Mine, for example, says album by artist name. Um, you know, type, genre, time, etc. And if you right click on that, then it will give you a drop down menu with a little checkbox and you can choose exactly which headings you want to show. And in my case, when I turned on iTunes Match, I, you know, checked, I wanted to turn on both the iCloud download and the iCloud status um, columns so that I can tell exactly what the status was of my songs. And then you can use that information to create smart playlists because all that stuff is accessible through smart playlists in iTunes. And we did an iTunes show. Go back and listen to that about smart play, uh, playlists. So you can set up a smart playlist just to show the ineligible tracks. And that allows you to very quickly, you know, whittle it down to the stuff that you need to deal with. 
And the, the answer there with the ineligible, and that's a single cloud with a diagonal line, is to re-encode it and see if that works. Uh, another status icon you get is the removed icon, and that is the iTunes cloud with an X in the middle of it. And that is a unique one. It shows up when you remove a song from iCloud on a different computer. And I did that. For instance, when I was taking care of my duplicate problem, I actually did it on my MacBook Air. Uh, even though the tracks weren't all downloaded on the MacBook Air, because it was in the iTunes match, I could still access them. And I was deleting tracks from iTunes uh, Cloud, from the match service, uh, from the laptop. Well, when I went back to the big iTunes you know, centralized iMac in the house, it had that X in it, which said, okay, you've actually removed this entirely from iClouds from another computer. Does that mean you still want it here? And that gives you a chance to decide if you made a mistake, if you want to re-encode it up to iTunes, or if you just want to delete it entirely. So in your case, to actually truly delete those songs, what you then had to do is go back to your main household iMac, sort by the status, and then remove those removed tracks again. Yeah, it was really three steps. So once I identified the bad track, I would delete it from that computer. But that doesn't delete it from iTunes. There's a a little checkbox that says, do you want me to delete this from iTunes match from the iCloud at the same time? And you either had to check it then or you had to delete it a second time when it showed up only as an iTunes match track from that computer. And that removed it there. Then you had to go back to the other computer where it was already in the, the, the centralized iTunes computer and delete it there as well. So I think basically what we're saying is as a safety measure, iTunes match isn't going to automatically sync and remove songs that have already been downloaded to a computer if you remotely delete them from another. Yes, and a fair an, assessment. Yeah, like an, as an analogy, take Dropbox. If you delete something from Dropbox, it goes off every computer. Right. This doesn't do that. It gives okay. you the chance. And and the magic key to that is that removed icon, which is a cloud with an X in the middle. Yeah. Uh, the next uh, p- potential status icon you'll see is a cloud with an exclamation point in the middle. And that just means there was an error of some sort. And they don't really tell you what the error is. So Something bad happened. Yeah. and um, Good luck fixing it. Yeah. I mean, we had a couple of those. One of them was uh, my wife had Walk Like an Egyptian. You know, I forget the artist who did that. So everybody's probably laughing at me now that I can't remember that. But uh, And then I tried to play the track on the computer, and it wouldn't play on the computer either. It was just a defective track, it turns out. So so I just deleted it, and that was that. But um, you, you may get some of those. and. I don't think we have any really magic cure for that stuff. You're just going to have to work through and identify what the issue was. But if you sort by it, you can find those tracks that erred. Um, another one is the, it's two clouds. It's like an overlapping cloud with a diagonal line. It's very similar to ineligible, but instead it's a duplicate. And the two clouds are what puts you on that track. So if you have what they perceive as duplicate versions of Blackbird, you're going to see the two clouds with the line through it next to one of them. It's not going to do it twice. And this is a good way also to to track down duplicates is a sort by that icon. And the final one is a dotted line cloud. And that just means it's a song that's identified to upload but hasn't uploaded yet. And making a smart playlist with that will give you a very good idea of how much work it has to do to finish the job. All right. That was a lot of information. Yeah, I'm, I, I did track down the Apple support article on this. I'm going to put it in the show notes. So if you're confused about those icons, it has little sample pictures of them and explains it. But, you know, the idea is when you're done, that those icons are all gone. And all you see is the the iCloud icon itself where you can download the app, uh, download the song.
Okay. Well, I'm I think completely we, lost in our outline now. I got I think, absorbed by that. Yeah, I think we need to take a break. I think okay. we need to take a break and absorb that. And let's let's talk about our second sponsor, which is One Password. Okay. So, you know, David, One Password we've talked about is the app that is is pretty much at this point required um, for all of the Macs, all the iPhones, all the iPads, all of the users in your house. Because it's really an app that is useful for so many things. Not only does it allow you to store safe, secure passwords and access them all by using your one password, so you don't have to remember 50 gazillion different passwords for 50 gazillion different websites, but it also allows you to store things like your credit card information or any other information that's in your wallet. Or it also allows you to store your password serial numbers. Um, I was just over, I was um, helping a friend out with, with their computer and I was just, I was so befuddled because it was such a mess. They have, they have this word document, David, sitting on their desktop that's called, guess, wait for it, passwords. And this word document sitting on their desktop that is not encrypted is where they've been keeping track of all of their passwords for all of their tools. And of course, they said that they were just so confused because they've got so many passwords against so many different websites that their great solution is they were just going to start using the same password for everything. So they basically made what every mistake you could make. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because so, it was just too hard. It was just too hard to manage having all of these all of these passwords for all of these sites and their little Word document sitting on their the desktop was was not doing it for them. Did you uh, bring the good word to them? I did. I, I said, let me let me let me show you this this thing called One Password. You you install it on your Mac, and then you can install it on your iPhone. You can install it on your iPad if you'd like. And what we're going to do is 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 just to start. We're going to take all of this information. I gave them some homework. I said we're going to take all of this information to start with out of this Word document. And we're going to have I'm going to have you type it into One Password. And then the next time I come see you, what we're going to do, and I showed them how to set it up and how one password as you create new logins on new websites will, you know, check a little box and it will remember those for you. And I also showed how you can set up this password generator so that one password will generate strong, secure logins for multiple websites. And all you have to do is remember this one password. And I said, and the next time we come back, what we're going to do is one password has a field where you can sort by password. So we can see where you've used that same password or where you've used the same password multiple times. And then we're going to go back to every single one of those websites and we're going to change those passwords one by one with a strong randomly generated password using the one password software generator. Now, this seems overwhelming, I know, but they were just, I mean, you would think that it would be easier just to have one password that you use everywhere and a little password file that you sit on your desktop, but obviously that's not working either. Well, it's all in the delivery. I could see them being very thankful for you sharing that with them or very angry at you. I'm not sure which one. Well, you, you had to approach it in the sense of what you're doing here right now isn't working either. So little little baby steps to get into the 1Password system. First, we're just going to move the information from your Word document into 1Password. And then the next time I come back, we're, we're going to go take care of all your duplicate passwords. Um, I think that the listeners of the show get it in a large sense. Uh, you know, there's some great screencasts from Don McAllister. Uh, there's a lot you can do with this app, but I think really you need to go almost beyond that and spread the word. This is, this is something that people need in their lives and a lot of people don't. So, you know, think of someone in your life that doesn't have, um, password security, who's doing lots of stuff on the internet and, you know, make that a Christmas present or a Hanukkah present or, 
you know, just share it with them this year at the end of the year and help them get more secure. I've done that in my own family. And uh, now that everybody's on a Mac, it's a lot easier for me <laughs> because I don't do a PC support anymore. But uh, I'm getting them all over to 1Password this year, and it's really great. Um, like with one of my sisters, I was uh, showing her how you can have secure notes. She wanted to have a secure place to store the social security numbers for her kids. And it was really easy. We just made a secure note, 1Password, and dropped it right in there. And so now it's on her iPhone as well, but it's behind a separate password wall, and it's a great way to go. You can get 1Password in the Mac App Store for $50, and that allows you to share it with everyone on that same uh, iTunes account. Uh, you can get a, a family license if you want to buy it from the um, 1Password website for $70. That gets five users. You can get an iOS hybrid version that gets you on both the iPhone and the iPad for $15. Or you can get it for either one individually for $10. And everything works through Dropbox, so all the data gets shared. And it's a great solution to managing passwords. And uh, thank you, 1Password, for your support of the show. Okay, so let's go back to this. I've recovered from my nerdgasm explosion on all the various there, iCloud problems. There's a lot to cover here. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, Jason Snell wrote this great post at Macworld, you know, saying, okay, now you've got everything uploaded. You've dealt with your problems. Now let's make this awesome. And what he did was he wrote a step to go through using smart playlists and track down the tracks that you have that are not 256-bit encryption and essentially upgrading them with the iCloud service. Right. And this is actually what got me um, to go sign up for iTunes Match. Because if you remember before, David, you know, I ripped all of, I ripped a bunch of my CDs myself, and then I bought a lot of music from iTunes over the years. A lot of that music was back when iTunes only delivered music to you, DRM protected in 128K. And then at some point a couple of years ago, I don't remember exactly, they made the switch to 256, iTunes Plus, um, no DRM. And they were charging you, I think it was if you wanted to upgrade them manually, and you still can pay this if you want, 30 cents a track to, um, you know, to download the, the upgraded versions. And at one point I went in and I looked at this and foolish, foolish me, you know, I, I went in and I, I upgraded several of the tracks many, you know, throughout the course of the years. Well, but, I think it, I think it made sense. I did the same thing. I probably spent 60 bucks upgrading tracks. Yeah, I did. But, I didn't do them all because to do them all would have cost me over $300. Yeah, I just picked my favorite ones. I picked but, my favorites and I went in and uploaded them, but but this is this is basically music, you know. I, I hate to say music amnesty, but this is basically a way to upgrade all of your tracks with iTunes Match for twenty four bucks. So, how many times did you pay thirty cents to upgrade Piano Man? I need to know. Uh, Piano Man, I had CDs for. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, either way, there so, are some things you just buy CDs for. So, uh, so you were upgrading these tracks. Well, what this does is it allows you to do that for free, and it removes DRM as well. And it's really not difficult. So what he did was he first had you, you know, first confirm everything is up in the iTunes cloud. And frankly, when you... Wait, wait, let me let me back up. All right. Because we didn't talk about this before. I, I, I would say, and you know, this, this is probably common knowledge, but since we didn't say at the very beginning, I will say it now. Before you even turn this iTunes match thing on, I think you need to make a full separate backup of your iTunes library. Would that be good advice? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, copy the whole library. Copy the whole library, and and yeah, just before you start messing around with things and deleting things, just make sure you have a good backup of your iTunes library. Yeah, and and once you get it all uploaded, you may want to make another. You may want to make another copy. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. Now so, we can go with Jason's procedure. So what he's saying is you go and make a smart playlist to display all your tracks that are less than 256K encryption, which is the best encryption. Really, Well, it's not the best encryption available, but I mean, it's well, not, not encryption. Um, it's, it's not um, lossless. I mean, there's better stuff, but I mean, it's much better than the 128 existing. And it's the, it's, it's guess, not encryption. It's encoding. Sorry. Okay. Let me start over. Yeah. No, no, that's all right. <laughs> make a smart list. Play this 128, anything less than 256K um, encoding. And, right. you know, the higher bit rate, the better the sound is, the m- lesser it is to be compressed and crunchy and all the other problems you have with low compression um, encoding. Right. Generally, and I know when I started this process, I was ripping everything at 128 because I just didn't really know better. At some point along the line, I upped it to 256. So when I'm ripping CDs now, they go 256. But for a long time, I didn't do that. And I never went back and re-ripped the hundreds of CDs I own. So I've got all these tracks in there that are less than 128. Well, now that I have iTunes Match, um, it it will see those, and it makes a 256K version available to me. Add to that the fact that I bought a lot of tracks from iTunes before they started selling them un, um, without DRM, DRM-free right. tracks. So not only do I have 128K, I also have these 128K DRM files that I bought from Apple. So you make the smart playlist anything less than 256, it makes an immediate list of those. I had like, I think, 4,500 songs that fit fit in that category. Okay. Okay. Then you take the leap of faith. You know, like the part in Indiana Jones where he has to step off the cliff Mm -hmm. and there's actually a rock there, a bridge there. It's like that. You go, having already backed everything up, you go through your library and you delete all those tracks. Well, but you you tweak the you tweak the smart playlist a little bit more, and and we'll put a link in the show note. But you basically say anything that's less two fifty six, and if any of the following are true, well, number one, it has to be music, and if any of the following are true, its iCloud status is matched because it has to be something that's matched. If it's just uploaded, it's not going to do you any good because you're yeah. just going to get the same file back. Yeah. Or the iCloud status is purchased. Yeah. Because it it has to be something that iTunes has because it's not going to do you any good if iTunes doesn't have it. Yeah, so you're deleting tracks that you already have a copy of in iTunes, according to the iCloud system. So when you delete those tracks, then the download icon appears next to them. If you you, make sure that you do one very important thing, and that is that you do not check that little box that says, also remove these from iCloud. Yeah, there's a dialog box that says, you're deleting this. Would you like me to also kill it in iCloud? And and no. If you do that, I would have lost 4,500 songs. Yes, be very careful. Read that very carefully. But, you know, you do have a backup. But but the point is, you know, the concept is that you're deleting it from your local computer only, and you still have the version available on iCloud. And then you can re-download those tracks. And when you re-download, it's going to come down 256 without DRM. And that could be a big download. Yeah, mine well, like was said, about mine was about half my library. Mine was over a thousand songs. Yeah, mine was like forty five hundred tracks. But by then, you know, it went much faster than my original painful downloads. I mean, uploads. I mean, so it it wasn't that bad, really. And you can do it in pieces if it really freaks you out. Start just doing an album. You know, just pick one album that fits in there, and just delete those ten tracks, and then re-download them. Yeah, yeah, or you, or you can even limit the playlist even further if it freaks you out, and you can say limit it to twenty five songs, or limit it to fifty songs, or limit it to a hundred songs, you know, and only do so many at a time. Well, I, I first did one just to make sure it worked. I, I understood it would work, but I just wanted to see it happen. Right. And then I did a couple albums, and then I selected like the four thousand remaining tracks and just said do it. 
and it worked fine. And then you walked away from a while while it while it downloaded four thousand songs because it's actually it's it's downloading four thousand songs from the iTunes store. So it's it's as though you're it, you are redownloading those songs. Yeah, and that's another good time to plug into Copper if you have it available. Right. Now we need to be clear that this, although you know, perhaps it's you know a good way for you to upgrade the music that you have legally obtained. This is not a license to pirate, and Apple has cut deals with the music labels. There are still some strings attached to this because your information is embedded in here. Yeah, it the, it shows your name attached to the track. So if you go and start uploading it to these file sharing services, it, it, there's a good chance it could come back to you. Um, I look at it between me and my kids. Um, you know, we've purchased a lot of tracks. Um, over the years from iTunes, even back in the DRM days that were music my kids were interested in, not I. And so I'd have no problem sharing those tracks with them if someday they go out and make their own iTunes library. Now that DRM is removed, it'll make it much easier, and I will be uh, sending that out with them to the world. I guess, I don't know if that makes me a criminal or not, but I'm okay with that. But I don't think it gives you an excuse to go and start sharing all these tracks with anybody you know. All right. Now, would this be a good time to talk about whether this is a a good thing for I mean, I think it is a good thing for a family, but you know, you were you were kind of talking about the idea of of keeping a a family music account together and I was kind of thinking that this may be a good an opportunity to to split them up. I guess the problem is and we will be talking about iOS later is there are settings in iOS where you can have your iTunes store account versus your iCloud account or your right. Yeah, and you know, for instance, your your calendar and your email and that stuff would be your your own iCloud account, whereas your music and your apps and everything would be on a shared account. Um, for us, you know, because we all have iOS devices, there is a benefit. I guess if it was just music, this would be a good time to start splitting into separate accounts for everybody. But that would mean that when we you know download the Monopoly game, we're going to have to buy four copies of it if we want to play together. That's true. That's true. And um, and also, I haven't really thought it through for music and movies, but I would because those are still de-armed. I'm sorry for movies and TV shows; those are still de-armed as well. So if we want, if they download a, if they buy a TV episode and they want to watch it on my iPad, and we were in separate accounts, that wouldn't work. So I, I just don't think it's there yet. I guess as long as you're living in the same household, it, it probably still makes sense to have a shared account. Um, you know, my thought is. You know, maybe at the point in times that they go off to college or are not in the same household, maybe, maybe it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that this applies to, which is kind of outside the the focus of the show, is the Mac App Store. You know, I started thinking about I bought a lot of Mac apps. And if the kids leave and go and do their own iTunes thing, the apps that they use that I've bought, they're going to have to repurchase like one password, you know, but, but could the kids not add your Mac app store account on their computer as one of their five authorized, as one of the five authorized computers? Hmm. I don't know. In addition to their account. I don't know, because then you've got two different iTunes accounts running at once. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't well, know. no, I, hmm. yeah, well, this stuff my, is still up in the air a lot. I it think. is very up in the air. My my thought would be, and here was my thinking, and this I, I mention it just because it may work for some people, and and you can kind of tell me if you think my 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 train of thought is way off base here. But let's say you decided to take this opportunity to completely 
dive, you know, completely go separate ways with your account. You know, David's going to have his account and, um, you know, your wife's going to have her account and your kids are going to have their accounts. So we're going to use iTunes match and everybody's music is now DRM free. Everybody's going to have their own music and every, all the music that we buy from now on is going to be DRM free. So music is good. We are never going to put any more DRM music you know, into our collective music system. So we never have to worry about DRM from a music standpoint. So we have all of these apps that we've bought, you know, from David's account. Well, going forward, if Daisy wants an account or if the kids want, or Daisy wants an app or the kids want an app, you know, they're going to buy them on their own separate accounts. But if they want access to use um, apps that David has bought as a family under his account, that they would just, um, you know, authorize David as a, or authorize them on their, their specific devices. I know you used to be able to do that with music. I don't know. It just seems to me like you're asking for trouble. Yeah. You know, at some point I think you just have to cut it and go on your own. And, and, and accept that you may lose access or you may have to rebuy some stuff. Yeah. But not music, but not music. Yeah. All right. So once you get this, this, I'll call it the snail upgrade. You know, Jason Snell, by the way, did a workflow show with us about a year ago, which is really good. I'll put that in the show notes too. Um, so once you do this Snell upgrade, you've got 256K versions of all your music. You know, I think the next thing you do is plug that external hard drive in again. Back, back it up. It up. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting point. You know, once you have all of this music backed up on an external hard drive or maybe two external hard drives and you've got it up in the iCloud, you can really start thinking about how much music do you want on this, you know, this idea of a centralized music server. Maybe you don't need your whole library installed on it if, if space is a problem. Well, your centralized music server is now the cloud. Yeah. As long as you continue paying for iCloud. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, the family, the family, big family iMac, I, a lot of, I don't sync with that very much. So maybe I could take some of my jazz stuff off there. And I, I don't know. So it's, I'm just starting to think about that, but I definitely would want it backed up at least twice before I started losing my remote copies. I mean, theoretically, your your internal hard drive could fail, your backup hard drive could fail, and you could just plug into iTunes and re-download all those tracks. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I'd want to depend on that. Right. The other thing we should mention that is especially if you're re-downloading many tracks, like in my case, it was over a thousand tracks that I re-downloaded. Um, the next time I did a sync to my iPhone. That was a very long sync because it was replacing all of those low bit rate tracks with the high bit rate tracks on my iPhone. Yeah. And that's another kind of issue now that you can sync your iPhone. Well, we're going to get into that using the iOS devices with iCloud and iTunes match, but you can also sync it wirelessly. And the whole process has really changed since we recorded that iTunes show. Okay. So we got the tracks upgraded. We've got the sync done. Uh, we've talked about now adding future music. We've already said that if you just download another CD or you up, I'm sorry, if you um, rip another CD, it'll automatically get pushed back up to the cloud. So once you get through that first painful process, you're going to be in pretty good shape in terms of your track storage and backup. Okay. But, it, but at this point, um, you know, I've got all my music in the cloud, you know, I've got, you know, okay. So let's say you did this on your big family iMac. And you've got all the stuff in the cloud. You've got, you know, your your main iTunes library is up there on your iMac. What about all my other devices? Let's start with the Macs or PCs. Okay. Okay. So um, if you've got another Mac in your house, you got 
my iMac, I'm sorry, my MacBook Air, my laptop. It's it sees all you know some seventeen, eighteen thousand tracks that I have. I can download any one of them by just clicking the little download icon next to the song and put it on my local computer. You can also stream on your Mac, which is interesting because you can't do that on iOS. It's not quite the same. But if you if you tap double tap a song without downloading, it, it will go up to the cloud and get it and stream it down to your Mac. So you can play it without having it stored on your local storage as long as you have an internet connection. Um, you can also manage the library from these other computers. Um, and I talked about that a little bit. You know, you delete a song first locally from the local hard drive and second, you know, from the iCloud storage, which, you know, can remove a song entirely from your library. Um, you can, if you have multiple Macs in your household, you can look at it as a, a source Mac and a secondary Mac. That's kind of how I refer to it. The source Mac is a centralized iMac. The secondary Mac is any other Mac in the house. And, um, and that compares a little bit to some other sharing technologies Apple has, like home sharing, where you can just see any track in the house and put it on your computer. It's, that's essentially a cloudless version of this type of sharing. Yeah, but but let's say, you know, like in your household, for example, you've got, you know, kids who have Macs. And I guess it's possible that you have, you know, music on your laptop that may not be on your iMac, right? Yeah. So does iCloud do its own scan and its own search of the music on your laptop to see, hey, okay, well, this is a song that I don't have matched yet, so I'm going to upload this. Or, Absolutely. okay, these, these I've already matched. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to redo that whole scan again. Yeah, I mean, as an example, we, were, um, um, we, had our, um, we brought a bunch of our Christmas CDs uh, out, out of town with us on a family trip, and we ripped them into Daisy's computer. Uh, her and we were playing them through the computer. Well, we hadn't ripped those into the library at home, and but Daisy's computer is already, you know, iTunes cloud, iTunes match friendly, so it's already got all that in there. And so we ripped the songs miles away from our home. When we got home, those songs showed up as in our library, but not downloaded on that centralized iMac. Yeah, now it's kind course. of cool, you know, when you think about it. So you can add songs to your library from any computer that's that's on your account. And of course, you only have to pay once because you're, it's all in the same account. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- these were CDs that we ripped. What happened was right. we went and we bought some CDs, some Christmas CDs, uh, when we were out of town. And we ripped them into the computer right there. And then when we got back home, they were already in the, the iMac. Right. So, yeah, everything talks to each other. You know, setting up a second Mac is an example um, you can, you know, you don't have to do the thing we used to do where you copied all of your music onto an external hard drive and then imported it into your library. Uh, you know, there was a whole like process for that. You know, if you were setting up a secondary Mac and you had a big library, like, like me, I would only be copying my jazz tracks, you know, and, and I wouldn't copy everything else and I wouldn't get all my metadata and it would be just kind of goofy. Now I just go on iCloud and just, just download the tracks. Uh, one trick there, by the way, if you want to download multiple tracks on another Mac, select as many tracks as you want, then right-click on those selected tracks, and there's a download button. You don't have to go through and click the individual download buttons 700 times. Now, are you also going to create some kind of unintended consequences here? Because in in your family case, um, you know, you've got your computer, your wife's computer, your kid's computer. If you're on your MacBook Air on a business trip, 
And because iTunes match and one of the benefits of that is it's going to sync your playlists as well. Are you going to see your daughter's Disney playlists on your MacBook Air? And is she going to see your jazz playlists on her MacBook? Absolutely. The uh, the playlists are shared throughout. And it works with both manual playlists and smart playlists. So you see them everywhere. In fact, when we were in the beta, I had these playlists show up on my uh, on my laptop that was a Glee playlist. Hmm. I'm, I'm sharing a secret here. I'm like, well, how did that get here? I just deleted it. Then, like, a couple days later, Daisy says, my Glee playlist is gone. I don't know what happened Uh-oh. to it. And I, I just said, I, I have no idea. I'm not sure. Something, <laughs> you must have pushed something wrong, honey. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I am not taking the blame for that. <laughs> and I realize, okay, well, so playlists are shared everywhere. But so what, what happens if your Miles Davis playlist ends up getting deleted? Then someone's going to die. Okay. That's all. But the... So but, that 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 can be a problem sharing well, amongst families. It's a benefit though too because it's a benefit too. You can modify those playlists. I've been you know culling my Christmas playlist lately, and I've been doing it from two or three different computers, and I'm adding tracks and removing tracks, and it's getting to be the perfect David Sparks Christmas playlist. I'm really starting to kind of get into it. I'm almost using playlists now more than ever because of this. And I that, think what's going to happen is your Miles Davis going to turn up with Glee music in it. That's not going to happen. A little revenge. Not I'm for more than it. like 10 seconds. I'm, t- I'm tweeting Daisy right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so we're, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so when you're dealing with Max, you know, you can, you can really do some interesting things about sharing. And it does a better job of sharing metadata like play counts and ratings than it did before because all of the stuff is tied together through the cloud. And I know you could do it before, but not as easy. And I think this is a real step up for managing multiple Macs with libraries. The funny well, thing about- And we're geeks. We like tracking this kind of stuff because ultimately I use a lot of this stuff to kind of help me figure out what I want to make a playlist for. Yeah. And you make better smart playlists when you've got that kind of, you know, play counts and ratings. You can make some really awesome smart playlists with that type of information. So my iTunes library is looking better than it ever has in terms of, you know, managing genres and play counts and all these things that that I can use. Now I find I'm paying more attention to it and I'm not giving up as much because it used to be we had the centralized computer. All four of us were using it and things would get, you know, monkeyed up pretty easily. And I uh, now I can fix it even easier. So I'm very happy with managing multiple Macs. The funny thing about that is um, we've got the, the Macs my kids are using are like five and six years old and they're on their last legs. And, you know, as we've been talking about as a family, we don't want to spend the money to replace those Macs. And we're thinking about increasingly switching the kids to just iOS devices that they'll be on an iPad. And we're just going to have one Mac in the house. And, and, um, you know, one that the family uses, and we'll just share accounts on this big iMac, which is three years old as well, but it, it's in great shape. So, you know, it, the the convenience of sharing with a Mac is great, but I think it's becoming less important to a lot of people, including our listeners, because iOS is taking over in a lot of ways. And that leads to the next topic. You're becoming part of the problem, David. Why? Yeah. Now we're getting the iOSification of the Mac, because people like you switching from trucks to cars. Yeah, well, I mean, for the stuff my kids, even my high school kid, I mean, she outlines and does a lot of stuff, and she's been doing it increasingly on the iPad. No, it's 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 amazing. My my grandparents' next computer is going to be an iPad. 
And I get it. if we've got one computer in the house where you can go in and do heavy lifting type chores, that'll be fine. But, you know, I think we're going to be a one Mac household pretty soon, except right. for my laptop. I'm not going to give that up. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about how you manage all this with, with iOS devices, because in a lot of ways it's exactly the same because the computer has been now been demoted to a client and iOS devices just like it is a client too. Yes and no, really. I, I think iOS is more of a client than a Mac is. Okay. Because you can't create smart playlists on it. Um, there's, you know, it, it you're more limited in your ability to monkey with the library. And it's certainly more difficult. It's not drag and drop easy. Yeah. But it's really great because all of these, by definition, the iOS devices have limited memory. And this is where all the work you're put into on those smart playlists and playlists comes in into play. Like once I get my ideal Christmas playlist done, which hopefully will be today, I'm going to go to my iPhone and I'm going to go to that smart playlist or that Christmas playlist of, of mine and just download all those tracks. And then I'm going to have great Christmas music for the rest of the season on my iOS device. Make sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, this is also a great way that, you know, maybe you don't need the 32 or 64 gigabyte iPhone. Maybe you can get away with the 16. Yeah. Although it, it, 16 would be hard for me because I like all that data. Right. Um, but, well, maybe you don't need 64. Maybe you can stick with 32. And before we even get started, I guess, before I get into that uh, that use for iOS, I just need to talk about how do you use it? How do you turn it on on iOS? Because it's not obvious. Um, I think this is one of the mistakes they made. You don't turn it on in the music app or the iPod app on the iPhone. You turn it on in the settings app, which is nutty. So you've got to go to the settings app and then to the music tab. And then at the top, you can turn on iCloud. There's two switches there. One turns on iCloud or iTunes match sharing. And the other one displays that. So if you want to have it turned on, but not see, you know, all 18,000 tracks on your iPhone, you can turn that second switch off. And once you get it, done right, you may want to do that. So you don't have to sort through all that other stuff just to listen to music. But the fact that you have to go to a different app to turn it on to me makes no sense whatsoever. There should be an obvious toggle switch or button right in the music app. Right. Now, if you've, if you've told it not to show you the other 1800 tracks, maybe just, just show you the ones that are synced to your iPhone. Um, can you search if you actually want to see one? Oh, you know, I know I have this track, but it's not necessarily on my iPhone. No, you got to go back and throw. You got to go back and flip the switch. Which means you got to leave the app, go back to the settings app, and then go back to the music app. It's just another example of why I think this is nutty. Right. Hopefully, they'll fix that. Uh, the other thing is, different things happen when you throw that switch, um, depending on what you've how you've set up your phone. If your phone is already syncing to the library that has the iTunes Match on it. Um, it's going to give you a warning saying, we're going to delete all your tracks on your phone because now you're switching to iTunes Match. Yeah, but it doesn't really. It doesn't really do it. So, Which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever. But if your phone is synced to a different library than the one that has the iTunes Match, so let's say you're switching to your wife's account or something, then boom, it's gone. I mean, you lose everything, and you're starting from scratch again. And you're not syncing music by the traditional way of, plugging into your Mac or using a wireless sync to your Mac and, and copying libraries over on your Mac, you're literally just downloading tracks on your phone and your device, which may not be as efficient for some people. Although now having used it for a month or two, I have to say I really prefer this. 
And the trick for me was getting really good playlists put together so I could just download all the tracks in a single playlist. So you don't have the Glee playlist downloaded? No, I don't, sadly. Hmm. No, I don't. At least not until my wife gets her hands on my phone. Now, one of the concerns I have is, you know, this seems to me, again, in Apple's ideal world, we all have ubiquitous, unlimited, super fast, everywhere data that we can just tap into whenever. But in the real world, you know, my AT&T data coverage is spotty. And I have bandwidth caps both through my um, cellular service provider and and in the you know through my um, my household you know service provider. So, aren't I going to be downloading and uploading and downloading a whole lot of songs quite a bit that I already own? Well, it depends. If you do it on a Wi-Fi, I think you're going to be fine. I mean, you're not going to download. I mean, the most you could download, I guess, would be 64 gigs of files if you had the super end device and that's not all going to be music so that's not realistic um downloading on 3g is not enabled by default you have to toggle that on um again in the network settings on your on your ios device we were in in target and we wanted to listen to phineas and ferb's christmas music because the music in the store was really lousy and i had uploaded that to icloud but i hadn't downloaded to my to my phone but i was able to get it in about you know 30 seconds, I had it playing. So it's pretty cool, but you got to turn that on. By default, you don't get 3G download for your music on your device unless you turn it on. Right. Uh, and, and the Wi-Fi sync, I really don't think people are going to hit bandwidth problems with that. It's not movies and video. It's just music files. The other thing about iOS is track management. You know, You never before were able to remove a track from your phone. You had to go to your computer and take it out that way. Um, now you can swipe to kill a track, you know, and delete a track just by swiping it. Moreover, uh, the iOS device itself is going to manage tracks for you as you need space. Um, my Christmas tracks, I'm going to be playing a lot the next month, but, you know, after 30, 60 days, whatever, they're not going to have been played for a long time. As the phone needs space, it will go and delete tracks smartly. It'll pick the ones that haven't been played a lot lately, and it'll start deleting them for you. Yeah, I, I guess that's a good thing. That that worries me a little bit. I mean, I don't I don't ever want to go to my phone, and I guess if you have iTunes Match, it's not a big deal because you can just re-download it, but I hate the idea of going to my phone and something that's always been there is all of a sudden not. Well, I think it has a lot to do with space requirements, too. So if you've got plenty of space on your device, I doubt it's going to delete many tracks. Right. But yeah, if you're sure. if you're on the edge, you're you know between you know loading uh, yeah, an I app would, or I getting would, rid of some would, music you haven't played for six months, I think you'd be okay with that. I would be okay with that. Yeah. So what happens with iTunes Match if I don't renew at the end of the year? Because a lot of people say, you know, I'm just I'm just going to buy it. I'm just going to use it. I'm going to upgrade all of my music. I'm going to spend the twenty four bucks because or twenty five bucks because it's cheaper to do that than to pay thirty cents a pop from Apple. And um, and I'm going to use it for a year, and then that's going to be it. I'm never going to use it again. Um, you're fine. Just make sure you've downloaded everything when you get to the end of that year. Because anything that's in the cloud but not downloaded to your Mac is gone. Yeah, what you lose when you stop paying the 25 bucks is the ability to download and upload to the cloud. Right. So, David, aside from... Um, the ability to upgrade upgrade your songs to the DRM-free, you know, 256 encoded versions... Do you think that there is enough in terms of the playlist sharing and the 
multiple computer management and the sharing of uh, metadata across multiple platforms to justify you paying $25 a year? Yes, I think absolutely. It's, it's a good investment if you're into this stuff. Yeah, that's where I'm still a little bit on the fence. Um, I definitely think it was worth it for, for the first year to, to get my music library cleaned up and, and to get all my music upgraded. But, you know, again, this is us being in very different situations. I've got all of my music on my main Mac that I sync with my phone. I've got plenty of room on my phone. I, you know, I don't, don't know that it having it sync over the air means that much to me, which is why I was skeptical of iTunes match of why I needed it in the first place. So I I'm, I'm going to be really evaluating it over the, over the course of the next year to see how often do I use it? Because I primarily, you know, sync one Mac with one phone and one person. Yeah. And when I think of the time I spend trying to get iTunes libraries to sync up and losing metadata that is important to me and all the other things I've dealt with over the years of managing iTunes for my household. Um, I gladly give $25 right. to them to, to, to avoid that in the future. Well, let's, let's talk about some of our pet peeves with, uh, with iCloud. I, I think you mentioned one at the very beginning and that Apple really just turned this on and said, here it is, turn it on, click this button. We'll take care of it from here. And, and that was it. There was really no instructions and even the webpage didn't offer much description of what it did. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking now over an hour, and I think we've done a pretty good job of covering how to make it work. But, you know, how come we didn't have that guy with the black turtleneck and, you know, with the glasses that does the videos for Apple explaining this to us? It's unlike them. Well, I think in some respects, Apple didn't want this to be a complicated thing. iTunes matches easy. You turn it on, you click a button, and all your music is everywhere. You're done. Yeah, but it is complicated in some degree, and we we need a simple explanation. Even looking through the Apple Knowledge Base articles... They're not very good. I mean, usually they do a better job. I mean, of finding the details. I mean, a lot of us have done this just by trial and error more than anything we learned from Apple. Another thing that, that annoys me about it that they really need to change is the way you enable it and and filter it on iOS. Going between apps makes no sense to me, and it seems to me like they could be able to fix that relative, relatively easily. Right. One of the things that I think is interesting, and I'm not sure that there's any other way to implement it, but is the way that it's implemented on my Apple TV, my second generation Apple TV. Have you activated it on yours? You know, I haven't. Uh, Well, you may not have a reason to if you have a dedicated computer that's always on at your house that you can stream all of your music from. In your case, it sounds like your iMac has all of your music that you can stream to your Apple TV. Yeah, and that's how we do it. If you don't, then iCloud is an interesting thing because you can turn on – because the problem is if you don't, and you, let's say your your primary computer is a laptop, if your laptop is off or asleep and, and iTunes is closed, that Apple TV has access to none of the content, where if you turn on iTunes Match on that Apple TV, at least you have access to all of the content in the cloud. Now, an Apple TV doesn't, of course, it has, you know, some small storage for for streaming and buffering. It doesn't have any dedicated storage for holding anything. So if you want to play any of your music through your Apple TV or view any of your playlists, you can. But, you know, let's say you just want to start your Apple TV playing and leave it playing all day or for most of the day. Every time you do that, everything it does, it's going to be pulling down... um, Although probably not technically streaming, it's probably going to be downloading it into a buffer and then deleting it. But it's going to be, you know, for lack of a better word, streaming it all day long from the internet. So yeah, it's good. there is no way to store it locally, right? Uh, yeah. You know, except unless it's in the buffer. Yeah. 
and, and then it will be gone. So that's that's interesting, and that that could be a a data hog at at some point. And obviously, if you don't have good connectivity, it's not going to work at all. The other thing we we had a listener write in with a question and say, you know, I don't know how this happened. They didn't iterate whether they were in the beta or not. But my iCloud library is just completely nuts. I've got duplicates. Things aren't making sense. It is ridiculous. How do I just nuke and pave and start all over again? Is there any way for me to manage this library in the cloud? And I think I think you pointed out some ways to do that, but but there's really not a dedicated way to manage the library in the cloud. There's not a single button you push that kills everything in iCloud for you. You could do that, though. You could select all your tracks and delete them and check the box to remove them from iCloud and then reload iTunes from your backup. Right. Um, I guess I could have done something like that when I was dealing with my duplicate problem, but the problem wasn't big enough to justify that type of a you know drastic fix. I just went through and fixed them on iCloud. And uh, I'm really happy with the result. It did take some extra time. And I think if I'd been smarter about it to begin with, I probably wouldn't have had to spend that extra time. But I'm really pleased with the final result. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, the last thing I'd like to say is once you get all of this sorted out, back up again. Just get it all backed up. You got 256K, you've got your library sorted, you've probably got genres fixed and ratings fixed. Just just back up your entire iTunes library folder and put it in a safe place or two safe places. Because I, I don't think I would classify iCloud alone as a backup. No. No. Okay. Well, I think that covers it. Write in if you've got any other ideas, but uh, I'm a big fan of iTunes Match, and I'm it's improved my ability to listen to music, so I can't think of anything better than that. I can be at work, and if I get you know, the hunch to listen to something that I don't have on my phone. It's very easily for if I'm at work and I get the desire to listen to something on my phone and I haven't got it on there already. It's very easy for me to put it back on. Yeah. And you know, I guess if, if I'm on my iPhone and I don't have all my music there, I can, I can download something and listen to it and keep everything in sync. And you know, my big thing that I'm real happy about is, is everything's 256 now. So that's yeah. nice. And just the idea, I've got access to, you know, some 18,000 tracks in my pocket. That's kind of amazing. It's kind of, kind of a big deal. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about our last sponsor, Omni Group. Yeah. You know, Omni really saved us this week because, you know, David, we're, we're trying to uh, get some of these, these December shows in the can because I know we've got family commitments, we've got holidays, we've got traveling, we've got things to do. Um, so we're we're trying to record some shows here, and you and I are both really crazy. And one of the things that we use um, to manage our shows and to to outline all of our shows is Omni Outliner. But you know, you've been traveling, I've been traveling, and we've both been away from our Mac for a while. And you know, for the longest time, it was really hard for us to outline a show when we didn't have access to our Mac. But not anymore, huh? Yeah. I mean, yesterday my daughter, she's a she's a singer, so she was doing several gigs yesterday. And I'm paying back for all the times my parents went to watch me in plays and, and play my saxophone and all the other things I did growing up. And I'm going to all these things with her. So I spent a lot of time yesterday in theaters. And, you know, I didn't have a Mac with me. And I needed to get the show outlined. So I wrote the entire outline for this show on Omni Outliner for iPad. And it worked great. Once I got it done, I just emailed it off to Katie in Omni Outliner format. And we were ready to go. Yeah, I could either pull it up on my iPad and work on it if I wanted to, or in this case, what I did is I downloaded it to the Mac, 
you know, threw it in our shared Dropbox and, and we were able to continue collaborating on it from there. So it was nice that he was able to work on it on the road and then I was able to pick it up and, and go with it from there. So Omni Outliner for, for iPad really has all of the core built-in features that you could possibly need for an outlining program for the iPad. And although it's um, not quite as full-featured as their full desktop version, it certainly has everything that you need to get an outline done and to take comprehensive notes. I cannot tell you how much I wish that Omni Outliner for iPad was available when I was in school, because this is how I took notes when I was in school, is I outlined all the time. And this would have made my life so much simpler. I mean, that's one of the things we're talking about with my family. It's like if my daughter has an iPad, an Omni Outliner, and some basic word processing or text editing, I'm not sure she really needs anything else. Oh, I I, I think that's a... That's a very valid point. And because um, developers like Omni are out there making such a strong, comprehensive group of fully featured apps for the iPad, yeah, there, there's a strong argument that they don't need, you know, immediate access to a Mac all the time. Yeah. So Omni Outliner is on the, uh, available for the iPad. Yeah, it's $19.99 in the iTunes store. Um, or if you want to pick it up for Mac, you can do that too. There's a 14-day free trial of the Mac version on their website. Uh, and you can pick up the standard version for Mac for $39.99 or the professional version for $69.99. Yeah, and Omni Outliner is also in the Mac App Store too. So if you want to go that route, you can get it there. And it's a great app. I've been using it for years. It's the very first Omni product I purchased was on the outliner many years ago. You know, I think it was the very first Omni product I got too was on the outliner. Yeah. Um, they're going to be supporting iCloud. They've stated publicly, they haven't got it quite done yet, but once they get that done, it's going to make it even easier to share this data between uh, Macs and iPads. Right. If you want to learn more about Omni Outliner, whether it's for the Mac or for the iPad, go to their website over at omnigroup.com. They've got a, a feature comparison chart so you can see whether the standard or the pro version is right for you. And then they have a series of video tutorials so you can see exactly how easy Omni Outliner is to use in real life. And we could not do our show without it. And I've tried other outlining tools. I've tried online outlining tools. We've tried other collaboration tools. And none of them just even yeah. come close to we Omni Outliner. We've tried Google Docs. We, we tried it all over the years. And we keep coming back to Omni Outliner. Always come back to Omni Outliner. So thank you, Omni, for making the show possible with Omni Outliner and, uh, and for your support of the Mac Power users. Okay, so we've got some feedback. Katie, I guess you heard about the ScanSnap models. Yes, apparently I, I got my numbering messed up when I was talking about the ScanSnap models in uh, the podcast last uh, last week, I guess it was. Um, so just uh, for quick comparison, there are three basic ScanSnap models that work for Mac. I actually have all three of them. I love all three of them, which is why I got them, them messed up. But for a quick rundown, the S1500M is the large document scanner, the desktop scanner. It's the one that I have on my desk and that I use for just about everything. It's got the 15-sheet document feeder. That is the big daddy of the scanners. And um, that's the one that you have as well, isn't it, David? Yeah, love it. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you can only pick one and if, if it's, it is of course the more expensive of the scanners, but it's, it's paid for itself many times over for me. Um, I do have an S1300, which used to be their, their portable scanner, but they have an even smaller one now, but it's a little smaller. It is portable. It could, um, you know, easily 
you know, fit into a bag and it can be USB powered, but it does still have a document feeder and it will still do front and back scanning at the same time. And I think the document feeder is smaller. Um, it, it will do a smaller subset of pages. I, I don't remember exactly how many, but, you know, it's easy to take a handful of pages and stick them through and it will go go through. I've got the S1300 on my, my desk at work when I just want to scan a, a quick thing or two and not go all the way down to the, the big um, copy or document scanner down the hall. And then they have a new S1100, which is in my travel bag. And that is a small uh, single sheet travel scanner that scans one sheet at a time, one side at a time. So if you just want to take quick cans, I, I use it when I'm, when I'm traveling, if I'm in a deposition or something and somebody uses an exhibit and I need to make a scan of it. So I want to include it in my electronic file, or if I'm traveling and I need to scan things in for, for my expense reports. Um, I use it for that. So those are the three models, the 15, the 13, and the 1100. Um, and and I, the I had no accounts. idea that that single sheet travel scanner even existed. I didn't know that. Oh, it, you didn't see it. At, they had it at Macworld. It was brand new at Macworld last year, and I and I picked one up yeah. just because, um, it, it, you know, if it comes in handy once or twice in a deposition where somebody pulls out a document you've never seen before and you need to scan it, it it's it's so small. It just, it just slides right in a, a bag with your laptop, and you're done. Nice. Um, we got some email in about Mint because we had a clarification and I had uh, feedback from a listener about, hey, you know, you're crazy to use Mint because it's giving everyone access to your data. Uh, several people wrote in to say that they looked into this with Mint and Mint's own website says they don't give access to the data. They only get read access. So if someone got into your Mint account, they could only read your accounts. They couldn't actually, uh, you know, fiddle with your money. Uh well, and that's that's the concern, just to clarify, is that you put your username and password into Mint.com, and I guess the concern is is that if Mint got pa- compromised, could they then have your username or password to your other sites? I guess it depends on how they were compromised. I guess if your Mint account got compromised, they only have read access to your accounts. But I, I, I don't know about if Mint's actual servers got compromised and they had access to the, the data on the servers. I don't I know. I don't think they would, but I'm not going to speak on that. And just right. on this point, I'm going to say right now, I'm done with personal finance. We're not going to do any more feedback on it. <laughs> um, at some point we'll do a show on it and then we'll talk about it again. But this thing just, it's like, it won't die. <laughs> so I'm just done with it. No more feedback. Yeah. And when we do a show on it, we'll get somebody really smart to talk about it with us, and we'll solve that problem probably next year sometime. Yeah. Um, I did get some feedback that I I wanted to address. I had a couple of users um, email me, some very excited and some not so excited, because we we announced in the last show that we wanted to have an automation focus for for 2012 and that we were going to um, do quite a few shows featuring automation in 2012. And I had a couple of people very excited about that, and a couple of people email and say, "Eh, I don't know, I think that's going to be over my head. I'm not sure if that's something that I'm interested in. You know, if you guys are just going to go off and you're going to talk about scripting and Perl and automation and all this thing, and that's what your show's going to be from now on. I'm not so sure I'm interested in that. Um, and, I, and I guess we should should clarify. Um, by no means, you know, we are not going to turn this into a automation-only show in 2012. We are not going to turn this into a scripting or an automator show or anything like that. We're going to do the exact same Mac Power users that you're used to. And in fact, we've, we've got a lot of cool things planned for 2012. I think what we were indicating is that we would like to do a couple of episodes in 2012 on the topic of automation, including 
um, you know, perhaps a show on Automator, building on the show on Keyboard Maestro, and maybe finding some other topics about how your Mac can automate some task, whether it's through true automation or whether it's using things like filters, um, you know, or, or tools like Hazel, things that we've already talked about uh, to, to make your Mac easier to use and to simplify your life uh, through using tools on your Mac. Would that be kind of a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I look at it as a series on automation and there's a story arc. We've already got laid out about four more episodes where we've got specific topics related to automation where we're going to allow you to get into it. Even if you've never done this stuff, the point of these shows will be to kind of get your feet wet and give you what you need to launch off and learn more about it. So come into it with an open mind, but you know, it's just a series. We're going to be doing the rest of our shows that we always do as well. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I like hearing the positive feedback, the people who are concerned about it, just give it a chance. Cause I think you may find it's pretty useful. Right. And, and if it's not for you, there are going to be plenty of other shows that if you like what we've been doing before, there are going to be plenty more of that too. Okay. So how do you get a hold of us? Well, you can find links to everything that we've talked about in our show notes, and that's going to be at www.macpowerusers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Or send feedback to email. Uh, that's a feedback at macpowerusers.com. You can find us on Twitter. The show is at macpowerusers. I'm at Katie Floyd, or David is at Mac Sparky. And um, we love iTunes comments. Please keep them coming. Right. Um, thank you to our sponsors, Smile, 1Password, Omnigroup, Chrometa, and Byword. We really appreciate your support. And uh, without you, this show would have not been possible. Uh, and also thank you to the individuals who have supported us uh, through your donations through our website. And uh, we appreciate that as well. Uh, so for our next show, we're going to talk with uh, our friend George Starcher. We've had him on the show before, who's a security expert. And we're going to talk no, about... No, no, no. He's a security professional. Well, there you go. I he think he's not, both. That's a taboo term. You don't you say the word security expert. I learned that. Oh, really? Well, George Starcher is a really smart guy who's going to talk about web security in your Mac. Right. So, um, so if you have any questions, send those to us. Feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. We're going to get that recorded pretty quickly after this show is released. So... Send those to us pretty fast, and we may be able to get them in the outline. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.